I always tried to be a good developer and achieve something in my buildings that would have a tenant say, this is a good building, it's a Maclow building, and it's well run. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. Any discussion about modern life and its design falls on the architects and urban planners who toil for years to sculpt space and, if lucky, rise above things like politics and budgets to achieve works of wonder. But less examined are often the tycoons and power players that choose these talents, fund their imaginations, and put their neck and bank accounts on the line for the built environment. My guest today is one of those real estate developers that has had and continues to have an outsized impact on his hometown of New York, Harry Macklow. Macklow was raised in the New York area and had a brief stint in advertising that left an indelible impression on him. At a certain point, he switched careers to that of a real estate broker and then quickly to developer. And the rest is history. But his love of art and design never wavered, and he melded those loves into his career. Today, 50-something years later, Harry Macklow has a signature on some of the biggest real estate purchases and developments the city has ever seen. From Metropolitan Tower in Midtown, built in the 1980s, to Raphael Vignoli's 432 Park Avenue, whose grid-like 85-floor design has garnered more column inches in the press than most. His latest venture is One Wall Street, a massive tower in Manhattan's financial district in the Art Deco style that Macklow has carefully converted into a mixed-use building, primarily residential. A former bank, it's one of the biggest office-to-residential conversions in the city's history. I toured the building myself, and it's a real treat to be in an apartment where, in one unit, I literally could look into the neighboring stock exchange. The building's crown jewel is the so-called Red Room, which will become a luxury department store. It's a lobby with soaring triple-height ceilings, covered entirely in red and gold mosaics, created by the famed muralist Hildreth Mayer. The restoration of this single room reportedly cost over a million dollars. Today, thanks to Macklow, it sparkles. I caught up with Harry Macklow from his office in New York to chat about his early days as a gopher in advertising, how he convinced Steve Jobs to build the now-famous Glass Cube for Apple, and just what makes a good developer. Oh, and stick around to the very end for a special treat and a little chuckle. Nearly every sort of biography of yours mentioned that you kind of left school to become a real estate broker. And you mentions, always mentions your time at the School of Visual Arts, very famous art school here. Um, I'm curious, like, what was that like? And what did you study there? Well, well first, firstly, uh, I, I worked in the advertising industry. Uh, my, my job was uh, menial, but, very, but extremely important. It really uh, was helpful. I, I was a messenger. I was uh, delivering packages for uh, the advertising agency, and uh, it certainly helped me learn the city. It was uh, exciting. Uh, it opened the door to a world that I did not know. Of course, uh, I, I then graduated because I guess I was a good messenger. Uh, to uh, I then graduated to becoming a mailboy. And uh, as a mailboy, not only did I get in very early to sort the mail, I then had the privilege of delivering the mail to an advertising agency which had three floors in an office building on 57th Street in Madison Avenue, which uh, 
as it comes full circle, uh, I ended up buying all the land behind that office building and building 432 Park Avenue. Uh, but for, from from the mailboy, you get to know all of the copywriters, all of the uh, people in the art department, in media and account executives. And you get to see and understand at a very young age the complexities of the advertising agency and of the business. And of course, as a very young person, kind of what makes Sammy run? There's so much that you're interested in. And why can't I do that? I can do this. These are I, the ideas that I have. And it's only the fertile imagination of youth that is springing forth every day with lots of ideas, some of them very realistic, some of them not, and all of them observations based upon what it is their environment is. And of course, uh, no bad habits because uh, the training is just starting. So that was that was my career in advertising. And, and I found uh, that advertising has always been an extremely important part of the crucible of of my learning, uh, especially graphics and uh, the kind of Swiss school or what I call the Yale School of Design. So I guess I was always guided by and had a nascent interest in the arts. Architecture is just a natural extension of when I made the transition from advertising because I felt the ideas I had were just not transportable. Nobody would listen. And then I was exposed to real estate and I thought this is a far more creative, imaginative industry. I didn't understand real estate or real estate brokerage. Oh, you can own a building? Oh, really? Uh, but I soon learned, and I thought that was something that I wanted to do. For me, as a young man, 21, 22 years old, it was intoxicating, and uh, it answered all of the questions of the why nots. So it gave me a platform from which to grow. I mean, your your roots in New York are just about as deep as anyone's, and you're you're essentially in the firmament at this point. I'm curious what your first memories are of New York City, you know, as a as a kid or as a young adult, um, of what New York City was like back then and and how that how that's sort of like pictured in your mind when you think when you close your eyes and you think back to those your first memories of New York City, like what do you what do you imagine? I remember the thrill of going to a night baseball game in Ebbets Field in Brooklyn with my father, I, my father and my brother, I thought it was a privilege to go with him to spend an evening. And when I walked into the stadium and I saw the lights shining on the grass, I was, I, I must have been eight, eight or nine years old. I was totally overwhelmed. I couldn't believe that I was walking into this thing and it was night and all of a sudden the brightness, it was day, it was as though the sun were shining and it was as though somebody had painted the grass green. In retrospect, it kind of reminded me of a scene from the movie Blow Up, which subsequently was all about color and sensory perceptions. And uh, I remember that as though it were 
not even yesterday, as though it were today, uh, taking my taking my breath away. I remember where I sat. I remember what I saw. I remember uh, not eating a hot dog, but uh, the ball game was insignificant. It was the space, the place, uh, and that this could be. I also remember the Third uh, Avenue L, which was on Lexington Avenue. Uh, and I, I remember that train, and I remember visiting my father's office, and I remember infancy of seeing and understanding uh, Manhattan. We lived in Westchester in New Rochelle and moved to, moved to New York, uh, 18 years old. Uh, that's when I started to really understand. Of course, I came to New York to visit friends uh, while I was in, in Westchester, but it was after 18 that uh, I, I got to know know the city. But those are the out. That's the one outstanding uh, memory that I have uh, that's so visual. And uh, and I guess the second very strong uh, memory was going to the Washington Monument and seeing the magnificence of that spire. Uh, that was overwhelming. Not the cherry blossoms, but the Washington Monument itself. The th- the thinness, the design of the building. And did your parents have sort of modern tastes? Did you grow up in a sort of like mid-century modern household? Or, you know, because you you you've been so influential in the sort of state of design of New York in so many different ways over the years. I'm curious, like, what were your, did you, were you surrounded by that kind of culture as a, as a child with your parents or were they kind of more, had more traditional tastes? Uh, <laughs> very, very, very traditional. For, for, firstly, my, my grandfather came from Poland to the United States with uh, Grandma Sarah in 1895. They came through Germany. I have the manifest from my cousin uh, on the boat that they they arrived, and uh, they spoke Yiddish. They never uh, they never learned, uh, or they learned a, a very limited amount of English. They were wonderful people in, in my memory's eye. We didn't see them that often, but uh, they lived in Brooklyn. We lived in Westchester. M- my father was a uh, very 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 nice man. And he he dressed well, and I was always impressed with how neatly he dressed, how well he matched his ties, shirts, suits, and. But um, my my home was traditional. Uh, uh, my mother dec- decorated in fake French provincial um, with uh, p- plastic on the. Uh, covers in the living room when uh, nobody was there and nobody could sit there and that was not you couldn't go into the living room other than to transit it so uh, but I do remember that she painted and uh, that was a little bit of influence to me but uh, not not that much my my interest in design architecture really uh, came from the uh, advertising business. I, I was observant enough to be attracted and understand a type font to recognize and learn and ask questions about the difference between New, New York Times, Bold, Helvetica, uh, and Bodoni. Uh, I had a curiosity and whatever it was that I was doing, I wanted to know 
why, what, and how it works. And I really loved the advertising industry, which was extremely important to me when I became a real estate broker because the references that I had were advertising agencies. It was the advertising column in the New York Times every day. It was Gray Advertising, McCann Erickson. They got this account. They got account, that account. It was Wells Rich and Green. It was the Alka-Seltzer commercial. I, rec- I recognized that if an advertising company switch their advertising from one advertising agency to another, that advertising agency would need new personnel, would have to expand. And I would try to follow, track, and ask uh, those companies if they were in need of more space, wanted to move, and could I be their representative to find them space. And that's really how I got my start in the uh, real estate brokerage world. And as I did that for a couple of years, starting with nothing and then accumulating my commissions, I, I recognized that the proper side of the desk to sit at was the landlord's side. Although you would sacrifice uh, ready money, uh, it was investing and it was a future as uh, as opposed to the brokerage side, which was a a little more uncertain. And as a developer, what was your first first big deal and and how did that happen? Uh, One of my friends at Hemsley Spear knew that as a real estate broker, I wanted to make investments and make that transition. He offered me a building on 28th Street between Park Avenue South and Madison Avenue, across the street from New York Life Insurance, which was a complex of new buildings. This was an older loft building that was built uh, turn of the century. I looked at it, went through it, and thought that I would be able to take a loft building, which was manufacturing. There were lots of needlepoint tenancies in this building, and they were paying a dollar, a dollar and a half a foot. And I, and I thought that the market should be $4 a foot. And it should be what I would refer to as tertiary office space. So if the office space market was $5 or $6 a foot, this space should be able to rent at three ninety-five, four dollars $4 a foot and be attractive to a tenant who couldn't afford that first class rent. So that was the building that that I bought. I put together a group of friends, uh, together with my own uh, equity investment, um, and I acquired the building. The uh, broker who sold it to me has, of course, remained has remained a friend for for life. So, sold me subsequent many many other properties. So I didn't know exactly what to do with it. I asked the tenants to leave. They were manufacturers. The leases were month to month. The seller had anticipated that he would be able to get the most money if he sold the building vacant or if the building could be vacated so that it could be upgraded. And uh, I kind of made plans, drew them myself, and started on a construction program. I 
remember getting advice and help from space planners whom I knew because as an active, still an active real estate broker, my clients all needed interior architecture design. You understand that very well, what I'm talking about. So uh, there were several space design companies who wanted to uh, have me recommend them. So I was able to benefit, ask a lot of questions and learn a great deal because here I was renting to office tenants, negotiating leases on behalf of my tenants and understanding their construction, air conditioning, private office, library, photocopy. At that time, there wasn't even fax machine. It was all, it was still mimeograph. Um, and understanding their business, business plans. And therefore, I knew what I had to create in office space. So the first thing I did was I didn't have money to hire a demolition company. So I I owned a station wagon. So I went down to the Bowery, the Bowery in Houston Street. And I asked uh, this person, that person, I said, do you guys want to work? Do you want to earn some money? I've got a building and I need some demolition. So, you know, guys raised their hands, of course, and they said, yes, of course, we want to work. So I got six people. I put them into my station wagon and I drove back to 28th Street. And I had bought five and 10-pound sledgehammers, short hammers, long hammers. And I said, you've got this floor to demolish, take down all these walls, knock them down from the ceiling right to the floor, pile the rubble if you can. I had wheelbarrows. And uh, so I had six men working and demolishing the first three floors of a 12-story building. And uh, came along lunchtime and they said to me, we'd like to go out and get, get, get lunch. I said, of course, yeah, take a half an hour, get lunch. He said, could you give us money for lunch. We don't have any money. Could you pay us for, give us a couple of dollars? We've worked for you the morning. I said, absolutely, of course. Uh, gave each man $10. They never came back. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, no. Well. So, 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 I, 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 I sat down, I lamented, and I thought about it, and I, I, I found a um, general contractor. I did a, a lot of interviewing, and I, f I found a, a general contractor. And I, I said, "This, <laughs> this is my problem." He he laughed and he said, "Of course, they never came back." Uh, he said they w they went out and got a couple of drinks. So that's how that's how I started. Uh, and I converted the building, and I, I remember being greatly influenced by things that were around me at the time. I think that was in the early 60s. I think it was the New York World's Fair at that time. And I saw things that Lightelier, a company, had done, and I uh, tried to copy them for my lobby lighting. And, of course, I was on a very limited budget, and I thought, I had designed a very clever, a very clever lobby without realizing that I had designed it. I had drawn it, put it all together and built it together with a lighting fixture that I asked electrician who I had hired to make for me. So I guess I designed the lobby and uh, I was a brief lighting designer. Before you return to Harry Macklow, a word from our sponsor. Lumens. 
We're living in a golden age of design, where architects, interior designers, and aesthetes have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 350 global brands with in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design. Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Piero Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Patrizia Urquiola. Just like Macalow's life in architecture and design has always been intertwined with Art Deco, Lumens is a fantastic source of transitional and luxury designs that span all eras and aesthetics. On Lumens.com, you might find a shimmering cabinet from Jonathan Adler, a chandelier by Hudson Valley Lighting, or a bronze-finished table lamp by Thomas O'Brien for Visual Comfort Studio. Visit Lumens.com to express your own design vision in any way you can imagine, fedora not included. That's L-U-M-E-N-S.com. From those humble beginnings of uh, wheelbarrows and sledgehammers, uh, I wanted to kind of jump ahead a little bit to the General Motors building uh, that I believe you purchased in the early 2000s. And I'm, I'm curious if you could tell me you know, why, why that building and how Apple first came into the picture with the Cube and everything that really kind of changed the face of retail uh, and had a massive impact on the design world. The, the General Motors building was a was an icon. When it was offered for sale the first time, I was very interested, but I didn't have the imagination or the ability to put together uh, the wherewithal to buy the building. So when it came up on the market the second time, I did, and I made every effort to buy it because I thought that was the pinnacle of buildings in central Manhattan, in the Grand Central and in the Plaza area. In the Plaza area, of course, it was the best, but uh, I, I thought these two important office concentration places were the best market and this was the best building and the most, and the most attractive. I... Uh, was able to, on my own, look at the building, understand the tenancy, see what the building could be because it had been purchased from the sponsor of General Motors building, uh, Cecilia Bonata and the British Investment Group. It had been purchased by Disc Dean, a uh, very smart real estate investor who did who was proficient in doing sale leaseback deals, and he had bought this building, and it was an operating position. And uh, he, it wasn't typical for his portfolio. And when he sold it to Donald Trump and Conseco, they ran it, they uh, rebuilt it, and uh, you may have forgotten, but uh, Trump put the name Trump on the General Motors building above the uh, ground floor and he rebuilt the ground floor and tried to call it the Trump building, but it was still the General Motors building. Um, I, th I saw a great deal of potential. There was a, uh, a plaza on Madison Avenue, which I thought should be retail and the building should be brought, be brought out to the sidewalk. Uh, 
there was a uh, a plaza that Trump had built that was up and down, and I thought made no architectural sense. I studied the elevations very carefully and thought you could create both a splendid plaza that was I was greatly influenced by Mies van der Rohe and the Seagram building. I studied that a great deal. I was greatly influenced by uh, I.M. Pei and the Pyramid in Paris, which I spent days and days photographing, measuring, studying, and uh, felt that there was a great deal to be learned by that and a, a redesign of the General Motors building and getting rid of Trump, getting rid of all the green marble and the brass, uh, going back to some references to Edward Durrell Stone, uh, to the sectagon shape, to the uh, whole architectural theme that he had was the appropriate way to architecturally look at the product and to recreate it. At the same time, I had bought a piece of land uh, that you may remember on Houston Street and Broadway. Um, Houston Street is a divider. And as a east-west street, it's very, very interesting because it starts very far east at the East River. Of course, it ends uh, in kind of Greenwich Village uh, at 6th Avenue uh, as a main boulevard. But it has a graceful curve to it. It's not a straight street. And at, uh, at Lafayette Street and at Broadway, there's a very, very gentle, very subtle curve. And at the northeast corner of Houston Street and Broadway was a car wash and a gas station. It was called the Whale of a Wash. And across the street was a loft building, and it was the beginning of Soho. So the north side of Houston Street is really the end of NYU, and the south side is the beginning of Soho, although NYU has property within it. But that is kind of symbolically what happened. And Donna Karen had a magnificent, wonderful uh, advertising billboard on the south side of Houston Street, which was like 15 stories high. And the advertising agency aren't, I forgot the aren't Fox or something, a very, very smart bright advertising agency, had this fabulous mural on the wall for her with her fashions. And it was gray and white, and it was uh, the, the colors were beautiful, and the drawings were uh, seductive. And I, um, I bought that, and I felt that because I had owned a lot of buildings, I owned 35 or 40 buildings in Soho in the early 70s, I felt that there was an opportunity to build a first-class office building on this site. And uh, I, I also heard that Apple was in the market for a space in Soho. Uh, and fortunately, the real estate director of Apple is a real estate director I knew 
because I had rented in a few of my office buildings space to the gap. And I knew the Fishers, who were the owners of the gap. We both were art collectors. Uh, and his real estate director, whom I had worked with, went from the gap to Apple. So he was the man conducting the search. And I said, listen, I've got a great building for you. And I pushed the building, which I ultimately built. It's beautiful. And Adidas is the tenant there. Uh, if you go by the four corners of Houston Street and Broadway, you'll see, you'll see the building. It's one of, of it's one that I'm enormously proud of. Uh, I designed it together with studios, uh, together with uh, Dan Shannon, my design partner, and we built a, I think, a very forward, gorgeous building. Um, and I'm enormously proud of it. Um, so I, I said this would be a sensational home for Apple because the building has anodized gray facade. It almost looks like an iPad turned on its side. Uh, uh, so I thought there would be that association. And the, and the guy said, no, 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 no. He said, Steve Jobs has seen what was then a post office and it was leased to restoration hardware. They weren't going ahead with their lease. And that became the Apple store in Soho. That was the first Apple store in, in Manhattan. So I think still is there, still is there in the same building. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was, I was disappointed. And at the same time, I was bidding on the General Motors building. And I said, what else are you looking for? He said, well, we're looking for something on Fifth Avenue. I said, well, that's interesting. I said, I think I have the perfect location. I said, because you guys really, you don't want to be in a store. You want to be your own image. And I have some ideas. I said, if I'm successful, uh, I'm going to offer something to you. So uh, that's the genesis of uh, the creation of the Apple with Maclo. And uh, it is... Uh, the beginning, in my mind, of the Apple Cube. When when I when I when I was successful, I then called the real estate director and I said, "I bought the General Motors building. Come over and I want you to look at it." And I all I did is showed him with my hand the plaza. I said, "Forget this. This is yours. This can be Apple." He said, ah, no, who, nobody will come up to 59th Street. Nobody will come up to 59th Street. Two weeks later, I got a call from Steve Jobs. And he said, could you come out and see me? I'm very interested in the General Motors building. I have something I want to show you. And I said, great. I said, I have something I want to show you. So we met. Uh, he picked me up at the airport in a pickup truck. Uh, <laughs> I sat in the back of a pickup truck and was taken to his office in Cupertino, directly to his office. And he was walking around in his black turtleneck T-shirt and his jeans and his uh, uh, 
basketball sneakers. We shook hands. We spoke for a half an hour. We kibitzed back and forth. He had built a model of the plaza. I had come with a model of the plaza. We talked about it. I had 50 different designs, including the cube. He had a design that was also a variation of the cube. And we shook hands immediately. That was a deal that took, it had nothing to do with rent. He understood the uniqueness of this. I understood what I had. And it was all about design, architecture, presentation. And we both knew that this would uh, change the city. And your latest is One Wall Street. Uh, which is this incredible building. And for those listening that might be, you know, living uh, outside of New York, I'm wondering if you could describe this incredible building yourself uh, to the totally uninitiated. One Wall Street sits at the very nexus, the very apex of, of the financial district of Manhattan. Manhattan is the home of the Stock ex- New York Stock Exchange. It's really the home of capitalism. As the United States has flourished, it's done so through public markets, and the public markets had all been concentrated within uh, 100 yards of one Wall Street. We are next to the New York Stock Exchange. We are one and a half blocks away from what was the American Stock Exchange. And uh, this is the heart of the financial community of the world. When I was a advertising employee, uh, the first bank that I had a bank account was Irving Trust. And One Wall Street had been built by Irving Trust in 1928. It was one of the five New York money center banks uh, Irving Trust um, uh, was founded uh, at the turn of the century, and it, it was able to maintain its independence into the 70s. Irving Trust built the building as their banking headquarters, and as their bank flourished and grew, they built the second half of Broadway to Exchange Place. So the Irving Trust building one Wall Street now uh, goes from Wall Street to Exchange Place, and it's 365 feet, and it's a 50, 51-story building, and it's uh, elegant in its Art Deco architecture. It was designed by Mr. Walker, and Mr. Walker designed several buildings that were very distinguished within a very subtle Art Deco style, uh, which was quite popular at the time, uh, very influenced by uh, Rockefeller Center and the Harrison and Abramovitz designs. Uh, But Walker's was more simplified and more distilled. When I saw the building, it has a million 250,000 feet in it, I thought it could be easily converted to a extraordinarily city within a city residence. 
I thought it should have a significant commercial component on the bottom, but I thought it should have uh, uh, apartments, rental, and condominiums in the middle and on the top. I felt it was large enough that it could become a mini, mini Rockefeller Center in that underneath the building was the subway. Three or four subways converged there, so that's a wonderful for transportation. Uh, it had several levels below grade for banking and vaults and office space, which I thought could be converted to beauty parlors and cobblers and food and several of the kind of community that lives below grade in Rockefeller Center and is connected by concourses. I thought that that could happen. And I wrote a three-page memo. I hand-wrote it. And um, I, I, I still look at it, refer to it. And I came pretty close to all the predictions that I had. The, the cobbler and the food and the beauty parlor has morphed into Whole Foods, has morphed into Lifetime Fitness, and now has morphed into the French department store, uh, Printemps. And there are three major department stores in Paris, Galleries Lafayette, Bon Marché, and Printemps. Printemps meaning spring in French. And we are fortunate enough to have rented them 55,000, 60,000 feet of space. And they are going to make an extraordinary store. They had an opportunity of choosing Uptown, Chelsea, Downtown, and I was able to convince them that, and they felt it also, that this community was growing, was flourishing, and they would be part of the nurturing process. So we have created, we have recreated and restored one of the beautiful architectural rooms that Irving Trust used as their major entry and banking office, and it was designed by Hildred Merth, a Art Deco uh, artist who was very popular at that time. We've restored it to its original design and glory. And it it's, this is the red room that you're speaking about, correct? This is, this, is, this is the red room. Then we have created throughout the building public spaces, swimming pools, private dining rooms we call the one club uh we have a swimming pool on the 38th floor that overlooks the uh, overlooks looks at the statue of liberty we have a lounge above that uh that's 6000 feet that is spectacular looking at lower bay looking at staten island uh, looking at the Statue of Liberty, just marveling at uh, the abundance of beauty in the skyline of uh, Manhattan and in the skyline of New Jersey. Um, we're a very, very special building. We've created a social kind of WeWorks space that is uh, uh in its design, I think, uh, sets a 
wonderful landmark design of shared free office use space, conference rooms, private podcast rooms, uh, lounge space, and workspace. Uh, we've created storage and uh, play areas for children th through, throughout the building. We have a 75,000-foot gym that is in, in every respect the most modern physical facility the being run by a spectacular company, Lifetime Fitness. I, I think it will be a very, very satisfying. Whoever uses it is going to be very pleased. And it's interesting when I describe this to you, I'm not talking about I've just designed something that I'm going to make money. I'm not talking about I've designed something that I'm going to be satisfied with. I'm talking about uh, we have created something that you are going to be very happy with. You're going to walk away and say, this is a special club or I'm very happy here. Meet me at this club. And that's always my always been my goal and uh, that has stayed with me from the beginning of my career. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, listening to these stories, if I were just to ask you, what is the Harry Macklow definition of a good developer? How do you define what is a good developer or, or even a great one? What is a good developer? That was the goal that I sought for myself, and I constantly challenged myself as I became more and more influential in the design process, more I would only work with an architect who would listen to me. I would only, uh, uh, I would have, I would respect what they did because little did I know, but I was learning rapidly and greatly influenced by wonderful, I was greatly influenced by Mies van der Rohe and the Seagram building. I was greatly influenced by the Parthenon. I was greatly influenced by the Roman Forum. I was greatly influenced by the Beatle ad in the New York Times. I was greatly influenced by the advertising Think Different. These influences all went into the matrix that made up what it was that I wanted to do for myself in creating a, a building that was different or that was the top of the line. Even though my buildings and my investments were small, I wanted them to be special. I wanted them to be tenant-oriented, and I wanted the tenant to get a full value. And if something wasn't right for the tenant, I wanted to rip it out. I didn't care. I didn't want to hear a complaint. I wanted to hear the satisfaction of this is a special landlord. He'll do anything for us to do it. And the the good developers that I admire are ones who do the ambitious projects. I have enormous respect for uh, related for Steve Ross, for the uh, certainly for Hudson Yards, for 
having a direction that is undeterred, a determination to to get there. So I think that's a good developer. I don't think his taste is mine. I don't think the sophisticated architectural ideas that I have, and when I say sophisticated, within the architectural community, and uh, that's what I call good architecture, good development. If I can blend myself into that, if I can be the designer, if I can be the inspiration, uh, then I, you know, I feel it's my building. I've done it. It's not just direction now. I've done it. I've drawn it. And I've, uh, I've been uh, totally instrumental and, uh, and the design of the building or hands in hand with the designer of the building and and feel that. So that's one that I feel is a good developer. Uh, an, another one uh, as a good developer is somebody who will associate themselves with me's, associate themselves with good designers, associate themselves with people who have the awareness and the ability to bring a good design to the table. Uh, I think uh, Steve Roth from Vernado is somebody I enormously respect. One, because he has a very great financial discipline. Two, because the architecture that he does not inspire and that he doesn't know, he knows enough to get the influential uh, architects to bring him there. And he wants to see that it's his first class. So his aspirations are as good as mine. They're as much as, as mine. And you've had a strong connection to the period of Art Deco uh, in your projects throughout the years. Um, I was doing some reading about your hotel, which I didn't, uh, which was something that uh, I might be a little bit too young to remember, but Hotel Macklow had a kind of a, I believe a little bit of a, of an Art Deco sense to it, to the interiors. I'm just wondering, like, you know, now that you spent all this time working on One Wall Street, um, do you have a kind of attachment to this kind of uh, Art Deco period in design history? Is it, you know, we talked a lot about mid-century modernism and Mies and and everything like that, but, um, you know, is there anything about Deco that and that period of time from a from an uh, architecture and development point of view that you particularly love? Well, I think you know Art Deco to to me morphs into modern architecture. I think Art Deco, uh, Deco to me, leads you into the Bauhaus. Uh, uh, I think you have to pay a lot of attention to Eileen Gray. You have to pay a lot of attention to Prouvay in order to get there. You have to understand these designers and these zeitgeists at that time, what the influences were. I think you have to understand the end of Bentwood furniture, and you have to understand the beginning of tubular furniture. 
you you have to understand Mies van der Rohe. You have to understand Marcel Breuer. You have to understand Eileen Gray. You have to understand the great influences of the Bauhaus uh, in Dessau. And you have to see without the Barcelona Pavilion, you couldn't have uh, Stephen Hall. You couldn't have Richard Meyer. You couldn't have Charles Guathby. You have to see that progressive architecture and you have to see that transitions within the arts, both the written arts, the performing arts, and all of the scripted arts and, uh, and, and culture and, and literature. So, you know, we, we owe a, a enormous debt of gratitude to uh, Art Deco, which is leading us really into tubular furniture. It's leading us into screens. It's leading us into the exploration of new materials. It's leading us into a new way of seeing things, you know, where the uh, Art Nouveau is more grotesque and more serialist. The Art Deco now is representative of the flapper times. It's representative of Otto Dix. It's representative of the culture that's coming out of Germany after the First World War. Uh, so, yes, that's a, an influence, but I'm a Miesian uh, architect. I'm a Miesian designer. I'm uh, a Yale School of Design on typeface. I'm a uh, person who looks at a display, looks at an advertisement, looks for the modernity of it, looks for the eye appeal, looks to what is the artificial visual datum? What am I looking at? What am I creating? Um, yes, I, I, I like and in, enjoy enormously uh, parts of the Art Deco. And in, uh, when I uh, designed Metropolitan Tower, um, there were a lot of influences, but I, I went back to uh, Biedermeyer and I went back to Joseph Hoffman uh, for some of my designs, I was influenced by the Normandy, which of course you know, br brings you back to the foothold of, uh, in a very crisp, you know, Metropolitan Tower is an, an enormously uh, modern, a very, very influential building. Metropolitan Tower, while it's subtle and, and not known within the architectural community, it's recognized as uh, it, it's it's almost as important as uh, Demoiselle d'Avignon. It's it's kind of breaking. It's it's almost as important as Cubism, because uh, 146 West 57th Street Metropolitan Tower was the first four-sided silicone building in New York City. It's the first curtain wall that was built by gluing glass onto interior mullions, by having an 
absolutely flush exterior with no metal exposed. And it was the distillation of architecture. It was the reflection of the sky. It was the transition of your eye looking at that. What am I seeing? Is that a mirror? Am I seeing clouds? Am I seeing a design? And uh, that was just uh, extraordinary. Thank you to Harry Macklow and a special thanks to Marta Brambilla for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more and sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. And, and as the last thing I will ask you might be a little bit on the more on the lighthearted side, you did some videos on a website long time ago called oldjewstellingjokes.com, which was one of the greatest things on the internet that is still around today. And you told some old jokes. And I'm wondering if you can recall one, one real zinger, old Jew telling jokes that you could recount, recall, recount for for the audience listening. Well, I think you have to be really very serious. This is a, extremely serious to me, and I, I take it seriously. So I don't think in terms of levity or jokes. But Sarah went to the Rebbe, and she said, Rebbe, 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 Nachem loves me. Should he be the lucky one? Or Mordecai, he says he loves me, he cherishes me. Should he be the lucky one? You're the smartest man in the village. Please, I want you should give me something. Well, Sarah, that's an interesting question. I got it. You should marry Mordecai and knock him. He'll be the lucky one. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I'm going to give you one more. So, children, this is what you can expect from marriage, and I'm glad that I had an opportunity to speak to you for an hour and a half. And tomorrow I will be performing the ceremony, says the rabbi in his study to the bride and groom. And the groom says, there's one question I have, rabbi. He said, yes, what is it? He said, uh, I've noticed that in our ceremonies, in our religion, the men dance with the men and the women dance with the women. But it's my wedding and I want to dance with my wife. He said, you want to dance with your wife? He said, absolutely not. God would frown on it. I couldn't perform this ceremony. And if you did that, I don't think the marriage would be successful. He said, okay, okay, Rabbi. He said, I have one more question. So go ahead and ask. He said, after we're married and the ceremony that you perform, can we have sex? He says, can you have sex? Sex is wonderful. It leads to children. Of course you can have sex. He says, well, can we have sex on a hot rubber blanket with chains and toys and whipped cream and olive oil? He said, oil, schmoil, do whatever you want. He said, well, can we have sex standing up? Absolutely not. It could lead to dancing. <laughs>